This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. I'm here for our Thursday episode with Dan Kent. Dan, how are you today? And I have to specify Kent because there's Dan Foch and I feel like everyone I meet, there's like some kind of Dan. So how's it going? How's the kind of, are you feeling? I know you were having a bit of a cold recently. Yeah, I had a bit of a cold last week, getting over it now. Just kind of hanging out here for a bit, going to Arizona on the weekend. It's been 25 degrees there pretty much all the time until we get there, and it's going to go down to 13. So uh, it's not going to be much <laughs> nicer there than it is here, which is pretty sad. But no, I'm just kind of waiting for uh, waiting for bank earnings mostly this morning, just from uh, Scotiabank. That was a pretty anticipated release this morning, and it, it had a lot in it. Yeah, I know. I It was really, it's like... Fintwit was blowing up with the yeah. Scotiabank earnings and you want to go over a little bit I'll give my take as well we've been kind of going back and forth all morning looking at different areas of the earnings release the you know the bad the really bad and the ugly I would say is a good way to sum it up for yeah. Scotiabank and so you want to go over and explain to people uh, how it looks and what kind of fire tire or tire fire we're dealing with yeah so I mean, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I kind of summarized it all kind of in sections. I mean, for the most part, Scotia usually kicks off the beginning of bank earnings. They're typically the first to report. And it it wasn't the most promising start for bank earnings. In fact, it was actually a really, it was a really poor quarter from Scotiabank, mostly due to uh, provisions. But total revenue came in at $8.3 billion, which is pretty large increase. It's an increase of around 14%. However, that was pretty much the only bright spot on the quarter. Earnings per share came in at $1.26, which is down pretty sharply from the $2.06 it reported in Q3 of 2022. And just to give an indication on these earnings, Scotiabank pays about $1.06 a quarter. So you know, in this quarter, the dividend, like you're looking at a pretty high payo ratio, just comparing it to the quarterly dividend. But the capital markets continue to struggle. I think they were down quite a bit, which is kind of, it kind of highlights how tight a lot of Canadians are financially and a, not a lot are investing. This isn't going to be unique to Scotiabank. I don't think you're going to see declines in the capital markets pretty much across the board, I think. Um, and provisions for credit losses as a percent of total net loans came in at 0.65 on the quarter. So through the first nine months of the year, it sits at 0.44. And this ratio has more than doubled uh, compared to last year. So total provisions, which are essentially loans, I guess I should say, which are essentially loans that the bank expects will go unpaid. They're not loans that are going unpaid, like are fully unpaid. It's just what the bank kind of predicts in the future. So you can get a lot of these banks that will say cautiously over report these numbers, or you can get some banks that will say be a bit aggressive, which in a sec, we'll talk about Scotiabank again during the pandemic, but total PCLs on the quarter came in at 1.256 billion, which was way higher than the 850 million that was expected. And uh, through the first nine months of the year compared to nine months last year, PCLs have launched from 1.38 billion to 3.4 billion. 
And one of the most alarming things is the increase in PCLs on performing loans. So if you don't know what a performing loan is, it's a loan that is still being paid by the borrower, but the bank expects, again, that it could, not necessarily that it will, but it could go unpaid. So the bank reported a 460% increase in quarter over quarter, I believe that was. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, I, didn't I, I actually have it on the shared screen yeah. for the uh, joint TCI listeners. So yeah, that was, it jumped out right when we were chatting. I'm like, oh man, look at this. Like, this is crazy. Yeah, and you're big. like, is this here year over year? I'm like, no, no, this is from Q3 2023 to Q4 went from 81 million for those performing loans to 454 million, which is, that's just wild. Like I don't think you see that very often or at all. No, and it's kind of the same situation. I guess I'll explain the the pandemic thing was Scotiabank during COVID did this too. They they kind of underestimated their provisions and these come out of net income, right? So it, they impact earnings per share. So a company could, a bank could realistically underestimate these, which could make their earnings seem higher at that time. And then if they have to play catch up in the future, you'll see it really hit earnings. And like a big increase like this kind of makes me feel that they might've been underestimating it before, or they're just being super cautious. But the the most shocking number on this regard was the ones that it virtually all came from Canada. So they reported (laughs) a, I think it was like a nine X increase quarter over quarter Mm -hmm. just on loans in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, 91% of that, like performing loans that are now part of their provisions for credit losses or PCLs. So 91% are actually from Canada. And Scotiabank has some pretty extensive operations outside of Canada too. So that's really interesting. It makes me like, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say because I see this number and I have kind of two things. Either, like you said, like they were under reporting, but the underreporting, like I have a question is, okay, were they doing purposely or were they not fully aware of the credit risk in their portfolio, which is as equally alarming because it's one or the other, right? Either they were purposely underreporting or they weren't fully aware of the kind of risk that they could potentially be exposed to. Yeah. And I think, I, I don't necessarily know what it could be. I would say maybe a combination of both. Like if you remember last week when I was uh, speaking on just the overall mortgage exposure and Scotiabank was pretty much one of the higher, I think CIBC was slightly worse, but Scotiabank was, you know, 15% of mortgages outstanding or coming due in the next year and like 90 some percent of them are fixed rate. So like maybe this is the bank kind of realizing that maybe rates aren't going to be coming down and they're taking those more higher risk mortgages that are going to renew at significantly higher rates and saying, you know, you know, some of these might be in danger. Um, But I think the key thing here is going to be, is the company kind of being overly cautious right now, kind of learning its lesson from the pandemic because it it kind of underreported, whereas all the other banks kind of reported in line, like steady numbers. They were all pretty close together. And then you just saw like Scotia be such an outlier. And it's, you're, you're going to get a little bit more insight on this when all the banks report. And, you know, if you see one company that's like really out of left field in terms of like reporting way too much or reporting way too little, you can kind of get a sense of whether or not 
like if they're doing this being overly cautious or maybe just, you know, a bit too aggressive. In this regard, it kind of looks overly cautious. I don't know. It's just such a large scale increase on a quarter over quarter basis. Yeah, you know, it's pretty crazy. And I found as you were talking, I found something else in terms of because you got me interested for the Canadian residential mortgages. So according to Scotiabank, so this is straight out of their investor presentation, is that the maturity, so they have a maturity schedule for all their mortgages broken down between fixed and variable. And they have $32.8 billion in mortgages coming due a fixed mortgage and sorry coming due in 2024 and 58.6 billion coming due in 2025 and i think it's safe to assume that a lot of these will see significant increase in interest rates obviously we don't know what interest rates will be next year in 2025 but these are mostly mortgages that probably saw rates in the mid twos to low threes so you can you know you can really figure that there's going to be some significant jump in payments for these holders yeah it's i mean it's pretty much a guarantee unless you figure that you know rates are going to get cut in the next like you would need in order for some of these fiscal year 2024 is you need them to come down quite a bit you probably need them to start cutting like this year like late this year or maybe like really early next year (laughs) yeah Yeah. and like they would need to cut aggressively which i would say is is almost impossible like i just don't see them doing it you could see them maybe staying flat or maybe cutting you know maybe 25 basis points at a time but in order to like offset these large scale increases they need to go a lot more than that in terms of just overall outlook, so the company expects modest growth in profits next year uh, relative to this year's earnings. And you know, some people might be reading that and be like, okay, they're they're going to you know get back to profitability, like get back to growing earnings next year. But the thing here is earnings, and a lot of this is due to higher provisions. Like it's not actually, which I mean, provisions can be losses, right? But they can also be added back later if they overestimate. Yeah. So. This is kind of not like fully accurate, but their earnings per share with the provisions have fallen back to 2017 levels. So in just a little over the year, in just a little over a year, Scotia has gone from reporting all-time highs in terms of earnings per share to just wiping out six years worth of earnings. And even if we assume that like modest growth, I would say would mean maybe low to single digits. So I think their trailing 12-month earnings are like in the low $6 range. So if it posts earnings, you know, in the mid to high $6 range, that their dividend is significantly higher in terms of payout ratio than what they would typically pay out. So this is a company that pays out anywhere historically, except for crisis situations like COVID, great financial crisis. They pay out around 45 to 50% of their earnings, maybe 55% on the high end. Even if they got earnings to $7 per share, which I mean, even according to them, is probably really unlikely. The payout ratio would still come in above 60%. The more likely result is they do grow in the low single-digit range, and then you have payout ratios of above 65%. So to me, it just seems like, you know, if there's going to be a dividend increase, which they typically do increase next quarter, I think it's just kind of going to be an increase to maybe keep their annual streak alive. Like, I wouldn't expect much of anything. If there is one. Yeah, just to say like, oh, we increased the dividend. It it was 1% increase, but we still increased it or whatever it is. And I think uh, the way I would see it for 
all the banks, not just Bank of Nova Scotia. But when you look at what their, you know, their forecast is for the results for next year, their guidance, I mean, I would say, okay, you want to use maybe their guidance as maybe a kind of base case, but you also want to assign probabilities to things getting worse and things getting potentially better. Yeah. I would say, you know, I'd probably personally give like 50% chance that things could get worse and maybe, you know, 50% that things are, as they say, are slightly better. That's how I would kind of view it for, because I don't know what's going to happen with the economy, which will have a big impact on how their loans perform and obviously the loan loss provisions, whether they increase them or potentially release some back into their earnings and helps earnings. So there's really, there's just a lot of different outcomes that we could see for Bank of Nova Scotia, but banks in general, just in this upcoming year, just because we don't really know what will happen. And there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of kind of new things that we have rarely seen in the past. And it's hard to gauge where it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, like I was taught, I discuss these banks quite a bit with like a lot of just Canadian investors overall. And the kind of the attitude for most was that, you know, they're, they're overstating these, like, you know, they're, they're being cautious. But the thing is, is like, what if they aren't? You know what I mean? Like there is, there's a bear case. There's probably, like you said, a base case. And then there's, there's probably a case where they are being cautious and earnings improve next year. But like if if you do think of the the case where things get even even slightly worse and they start reporting earnings in the in the five dollar per share mark in that range, like the dividend starts to get really really tight, and the like these banks, you know, they're not set up to pay out you know eighty plus percent of their earnings towards a dividend. That's why you typically see all of them paying out. You know, some of them are super conservative, but typically forty fifty percent, and um. You know, a lot of people were looking at at Scotiabank for for the yield, and now like it's even more. I think the company's yielding like nearly seven point five percent right now. So there's definitely a lot of a lot of negative sentiment priced into the stock right now. But there's also like I think there should be an acknowledgement that it it could possibly get worse. Yeah, no, and I think, and I mean, a lot of the replies that I've seen, you know, we've been pretty active on Twitter this morning. And I think it's a mix of a lot of, you know, people being bearish and then a lot of people saying, like, basically saying, well, banks have performed well, you know, look at their history, they'll be fine. And, you know, history tends to rhyme, but history is a good gauge until it doesn't work. So I think you have to really be careful to extrapolate what has happened in the past going forward. It could very well happen, but I think it's really important for people to start thinking in just probabilities and then make your investment decisions that way. That's, I mean, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, a lot of people were comparing, say, the provisions during the pandemic, but that was a much different situation. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. You had government governments injecting a ton of money into the economies. You had pretty much free money stimulating the economy. Like if you're thinking like, oh, you know, they, they booked all these loan loss provisions in the pandemic and, you know, they didn't have to use a lot of them. Like I, it's not, I think that's pretty dangerous comparing this period until then. And I mean, a lot of people like just mentioning this stuff, like, Canadians, I think, are so passionate about Canadian bank stocks that a lot yeah. of the times, even when you bring some of this stuff up, people get really, really defensive. And and like I own Canadian banks. I own 
uh, quite a bit, Royal, TD, and BMO. But I mean, I, I think it's important to at least acknowledge that these difficulties could exist. Do you think a lot of the issue, and I, I get a sense that people get overly optimistic about Canadian banks because of how they fared during the great financial crisis and how poorly the American banks did. And I think people tend to like rely on that period of time and say, look, it can't be worse than what happened then. And look at how Canadian banks were resilient. Well, you know, Canada's economy was hit way less, way yeah. less than the U.S. was exactly during that period of time. So you have to keep that in mind. If we're seeing anything right now, it's actually the opposite. The U.S. economy is faring much better than the Canadian economy. So I think, I don't know, I f do you have the same sense? I have a sense that people kind of look at that time period, see that Canadian banks drop, but they were resilient and offered like massive returns within like, let's say a five, seven year period afterwards that they tend to kind of anchor on that and just say, well, you know, worst case was that and look yeah, at how I they did. I think so. They compare that to back then. And I think you're bang on in the fact that it's kind of the reverse right now. Like Canada is the one kind of in the sticky situation just because of our mortgage structure uh, in relation to the United States. Like they won't see as much pressure on housing prices, mostly because like if you have, you know, a 2% mortgage that you locked in during the pandemic in the United States, like you're never listing your house right now unless you absolutely have to, which I think will you know, keep supply low, keep, you know, prices relatively maintained. Whereas here, like there's a lot of the big markets who are seeing a lot of, you know, drops in prices. And now people got to start renewing their mortgages at much higher rates. So I don't think it's the same situation. Uh, I think like using past events is, is kind of useful, but it's just like, you can never really, you know, a lot of people kind of point to the fact that these companies have paid dividends for like a hundred years or whatever it is, 150 years, but like it, the <laughs> yeah. dividend is one, one element of, you know, of, of total return. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean that some of these banks can't get in a bit of trouble over the next few years. And I think, I think just overall, when, when you mention this, uh, you know, as I said, like there's so many people in Canada, they're passionate about Canadian banks. When you talk about stuff like this, they, uh, they tend to get a bit defensive and they, they kind of think like I'm a super bear on Canadian banks. But I just like, like I said, I just, I think it's important that, you know, you acknowledge that they could be, could face some difficulties in the future for sure. So you heard it here first, go buy JPM, according to Dan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding around. But no, I think we did a good overview here. And obviously, we'll talk about the rest of the earnings. I think most of them are coming up this week, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is a bit different, but equitable reports, I think, next week. But they're... I don't think they're... Okay. They're more of like a deposit-based bank. Like yeah, the the, I think all the big banks yeah. report this week. Okay, so we'll definitely have a couple. I don't have the exact schedule either in front of me, but we'll definitely have a couple next Thursday. So make sure people tune in if you're interested in Canadian banks, which I'm sure we have a lot of people here. Um, we'll move on to our next segment here because I feel like we've done already <laughs> half of the episode on Bank of Nova Scotia. But I think it, it was fitting because of, you know, bank earnings kicking in and we'll see whether it's kind of a sign of things to come or the other banks, like you said, are going to report completely different results. Now, completely different here. So Changpeng Zhao, also known as CZ, is out as Binance CEO. So Binance is the largest crypto exchange in the world. CZ is founder 
was born in China, but he does have a Canadian connection because he moved to Canada with his family when he was 12 years old. And CZ was at the center of the whole FTX downfall. Last year, his infamous tweet was what really started the air quote run on the bank uh, for FTX customer and I say air quote because it should not have been a run on the bank they should have had assets one for one with what customer deposited but obviously they didn't and then the tweet from CZ who has millions of followers really sparked people starting the withdrawal and the downfall of FTX. Now as part of the settlement with the DOJ, so the Department of Justice in the U.S., Binance agreed to pay $4.3 billion in fines, which is one of the largest fines ever. Binance was accused of not maintaining a proper anti-money laundering program, also known as AML, operating an unlicensed money transmitting business and violating sanctions laws. And documents reveal that Binance had an approach of just going ahead with their plans rather than asking for permission from regulators because they saw that as, you know, holding back their business and they were really trying to do a land grab and they figured that they would deal with that later. And of course, that later is coming in now. Attorney General Merrick Garland said that Binance employees knew that it was serving users in sanctioned countries. CZ, who flew from the UAE to Seattle to appear in court, agreed to step down as CEO and pay a $50 million fine. He will also not be allowed to be involved in Binance management for three years. And there's also been some recent developments on that where the U.S. Is, has not allowed them just yet to return back to the UAE. So we'll have to see whether... He's allowed to go back or not until his sentencing, which is set to be done in early 2024, February of next year. He also waived his right to appeal the sentence if it is 18 months or less. So 18 months or less of prison time, he would not be able to appeal the sentence. He'll be replaced by Richard Tang, the head of Binance Regional Markets. And Binance also agreed to appoint an independent compliance officer to monitor who will be monitoring its uh, reporting and compliance efforts to the U.S. government. So in terms of what's next for Binance, there's definitely some questions that have come up about their ability to pay the $4.3 billion fine. They do post proof of reserves in terms of showing what they have versus, you know, the overall ratio compared to customer assets. However, there's been criticism with that because you don't know what the corresponding liabilities are because when you're looking, like for a bank, deposits are actually liabilities and the same thing would apply for an exchange because you know if users have assets you know these are liabilities that are owed by users so it'll be really interesting the other thing is you know how will the business be affected increased regulation and independent compliance officer the news of the settlement there's also question as to what impact this will have uh, just on some of their customers because clearly they were doing business with customers they shouldn't have. So what will that mean? Will revenues drop as a result of this? Will Binance be able to keep its number one spot as the world's largest crypto exchange? So there's a whole lot of questions here, but probably one of the last big dominoes in the crypto exchange kind of centralized world. I think I've 
I don't know what you think. I know you're not as uh, into crypto as I am, but I know a lot of people in the crypto world were kind of happy to see this because now they're able to move forward and kind of leave the whole kind of FTX, Binance, Celsius, all those, uh, you know, all those exchanges or um, yield centralized exchange, I would say, kind of in the rear view. Mirror. Yeah, I mean, I I pay a little bit of attention, especially like uh, uh, Matt, the other guy over at Stock Trades, he pays a lot of attention to this. And it was, uh, I still remember this whole fiasco from 2022. And, and it's kind of like, it seems like this situation, at least is like, like you said, it's kind of like a, it's better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. So they kind of just, maybe they kind of felt that, you know, kind of disregarding this and just going ahead would end up ultimately allowing them to capture more market share and in the end even like they had to have thought that this would eventually come to fruition so ultimately maybe they thought that yeah. it is still you know capturing that market share uh getting that client base would be more beneficial even now in the event that uh they're facing all these fines but i'd be interested as to why he waived his like what did he get for waiving his right to appeal if the sentence is less than 18 months like maybe a I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure it was part of the negotiation. So he may, maybe it was a smaller fine. Maybe he was guaranteed a certain amount. You know, I think the max he can get is 10 years from what I read in prison. But if it's more than 18 months, obviously, you'll be able to appeal the sentence. So I'm sure it was part yeah. of the negotiations and probably just figured, you know, we'll take care of it now. And then yeah, I'm we'll be done pretty with curious it. to see if he, if he goes to jail for this. I mean... It seems pretty shady overall, especially for like an exchange this yeah. big. Like, I don't know. This, I mean, the space is still pretty young. It's yeah. got a uh, long ways to go, but. Well, yeah, it always is funny because, and people will say, I, I know there's a lot of people that are pro or anti-crypto that listen to the podcast, and that's fine, but this is really important because, you know, whether you're into it or not, this is a major exchange, and people can say what they want, but you can just Google for banks, large banks bypassing anti-money laundering laws or controls, and you will not no. have a hard time finding banks doing so for billions of dollars. So to say this is a crypto-specific thing, I think people just, I'm just saying that's it was correct what he did or was right. I'm That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that, you know, this is not specific to the crypto space. I remember, I think there was HSBC a while back. So I think the bank had a list of sanctioned individuals. And when they knew an individual that was sanctioned, apparently they would put a dot in his name or her name <laughs> oh, to man. so the system wouldn't see it and they could still do business with that individual. And that's just an example. You don't have to look very far to You don't even have to, <laughs> to look find, back a few uh, months like T D is expects penalties from a probe on money laundering. And that was what? Like that was Yeah. That was like two months ago. Yeah. Yeah, and that was part of, wasn't that one of the reasons why their acquisition yeah. fell through? Was it Bank of the uh, West or something First like that? First Horizon. Yeah. Bank of the West was Bank of or, Montreal. No, First Horizon. Yeah, yeah you're, and they, you're uh, So yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not just the, the crypto space. I mean, uh, like I said, two months no, ago, exactly. you go back and there's there's what the second biggest Canadian bank by assets is doing it. So Or is at least getting probed and expects penalties based on it, which pretty much means they've done something. So yeah. Yeah.
Now we'll move on to some more Canadian news here. So BioSteel assets are finally sold. So it was a busy couple of weeks with earnings. I'm sure people kind of notice. I mean, we're in the thick of earnings season. So we hadn't had the chance to talk about this. It happened a couple of weeks ago. So the sale of BioSteel Canada assets will be was concluded. Well, I mean, it was agreed by the courts, the bankruptcy courts. So the sale of BioSteel Canada assets are going to go to DC Holdings, which includes all of intangible assets and intellectual property, BioSteel Canada formulas and recipes, all inventory of BioSteel Canada. And DC Holding is apparently does business as Coachwood Group, which is led by Canadian entrepreneur Dan Crosby. So it's, uh, I mean, He's a bit of an interesting <laughs> individual, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, you agree with me on that? Yeah, so I looked him up. Uh, he, apparently, he's into real estate as a bunch of also kind of nutrition supplement companies. But one thing that really stood out to me, and I'm, you know, I'm not implying anything, but you look at his LinkedIn, <laughs> you also looked at his Twitter and it makes me think of like 2021 or 2020, all these like trading bros that were like essentially like multi-millionaire from trading, but they still had to sell you the $200 course to show you how to trade and all these expensive Lamborghinis on their profiles and stuff like that, which is what he has. But, you know, one would assume that he probably has a decent amount of money if he was able to purchase those assets. Clearly, they probably got a good discount for them because they were in bankruptcy court. But, you know, that is looking like it's going to be resolved. And the second part of this is the sale of BioSteel manufacturing assets will be going to Gregory Packaging, which is a New Jersey-based company in the U.S. So it looks like finally Canopy growth, uh, Canopy will actually be, you know, kind of rid of those assets that were clearly uh, a money drag yeah, be, on the business. It'll be curious to see like how much this guy paid for them. Because I mean, I guess that'll, that'll come out eventually. There was no price, was there? No, it wasn't disclosed. disclosed, yeah. Maybe I should yeah. reach out to him on Twitter, but I, he had posted something about the sales for one of his business and how they were like real quick. And I was like, well, what are your pro-? And he was like, AMA, yeah. right? Ask me anything. So I responded. I said, well, what's your, your margins looking like? Because sales are all nice, but if you're, you know, you're not uh, making any money with it, who oh, really cares yeah, about <laughs> if you're losing money? Yeah. And he gave me a non-answer. <laughs> so I would... I would assume that he would probably give me a non-answer if I asked him for the oh, price. Oh yeah, I wouldn't too. doubt it. Yeah. That was another strategy among a lot of those uh, a lot of those guys is you know post revenue and don't mention anything else. They talk about how you can just push out all these sales, but it's uh, yeah, I don't know this. He's he runs. I mean, I don't know how successful they are, but he runs a bunch of like companies that would probably make you feel like he could kind of do something with this like so he started canadian protein which is one of the largest protein websites in canada for like online ordering of protein and then he's he's yeah. got a whole bunch of other nutrition companies a lot of them i i kind of looked up and it, it doesn't seem like they do too much but again i i don't really have any idea and then he, he even owns a golf course i think that's fairly recent he bought a golf course in like in windsor a few years ago and uh so he runs that yeah, it's, 
I don't know. I, the, my curiosity was eventually what Canopy would sell this for, but you might never, yeah, yeah, might never find out. So, yeah. No, I mean, I, I say that I just find it funny the the background yeah. for the apparently cars, but... he's a car en- enthusiast. That's what he calls himself. He's yeah, an enthusiast. But it is weird on yeah. your LinkedIn profile, yeah, to have that. Twitter, I you know that's one thing, but a LinkedIn profile. But anyways, all best of luck to him. I do hope that it works out. Clearly, I mean he's clearly doing something. Oh yeah, right. You Hopefully know? he does good with BioSteel because so. I do like it. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind it. I mean, I'm not like a, I don't mind their products, but I'm not like I'm pretty agnostic in terms of brands when it comes to that stuff. So I I could easily switch to something else or go with that. I'm kind of very much price based and i typically for me it's more for kind of electrolytes bca kind of stuff um protein i kind of stick with vegan protein because i find i don't digest the way yeah i find with well. uh with biosteel they either taste pretty good or they taste like cough medicine there's a few of them that are just gross yeah hey. <laughs> but yeah hopefully he does well with it no, exactly. So, do you want to tell us kind of an overview of Black Friday sales? I know there was a lot of data that came out. It's crazy how quickly it comes out right after yeah, Black it w- Friday. Yeah, it would be nice to get Amazon's numbers, but they, they didn't have anything. Shopify, on the other hand, and MasterCard pretty much report like it's like the day after. I think even MasterCard was like kind of the evening of, but Shopify reported 4.1 billion US dollars in Black Friday sales. Uh, You'd think that was so many Canadians feeling the pinch that spending would slow, but it's a 22% increase from last year's Black Friday. And I'm not exactly sure if this is same, I guess you could say same store sales because uh, with the addition of Shopify merchants with how fast it's growing in combination with just overall inflation, like this might not actually be as big of an increase as you'd think, but I don't know how Shopify reports that data if it's total or if it's just, you know, if they're looking year over year, if it's existing versus existing. There was a clear shift to online shopping just quoted by MasterCard. So they reported in-store sales were up only 1.1% while online increased 8.5%. And Shopify had said at one point, the platform during the peak earnings time of the platform, it was generating over $4.2 million in sales every minute. So obviously this isn't profit for Shopify. This is, this is solely just a revenue from the merchants, but those numbers are still, still pretty crazy. What will be interesting is holiday spend. And I think the company kind of has the same viewpoint as me. They stated that same, that more sales are shifting online. But they also said that more sales are becoming upfront at this point in time, maybe indicating that a lot of people are doing more of their Christmas shopping right now, or just even possibly, you know, sales that are brought in from earlier Black Fridays. And like, this makes sense because like the constant reinvention of like promotions these days, like Black Friday is always like, you know, pushed a week forward. You know, some companies then will do, you know, all of November is Black Friday sales. Like I was kind of joking around that like eventually Black Friday is going to be in July because every single retailer is just going to try and get the, you know, jump the gun on, on the other ones. So, I mean, from what I've read there's no online platform capturing market share in this space faster than Shopify. And uh, like the company is is ripping in 2023. It's up over 105%. And, and the crazy thing is it's still down over 50% on 
from its 2021 highs. And I mean, for me, I don't really buy too much into the Black Friday. You know, I think I think a lot of deals are, are kind of fabricated. They're not as good as you're kind of led on to believe. I mean, I, I was actually looking at, I don't know how legit it was, but I was actually looking at, it was a TikTok video of that of that girl that was pulling the the signs out, the Black Friday signs, and they were the exact same price. Yeah, the I don't know how real that is. Like <laughs> you can't guarantee if it's true, but I yeah. mean I, I would not be surprised. But I do do a lot of Christmas shopping around this time of year and not so much in the holidays. So I could definitely see uh if prices are good now, like holiday spending might not be as high. But yeah, I don't know your thoughts on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the way I see it, I I tend to, like, keep an eye on what I'm looking to buy. So I do have a good gauge on whether, like, it's an actual sell or not, and they're not just not trying to get you. And one good example is, and I think for people to a reminder, so we bought a new snowblower, kind of a full, uh, you know, electric, but battery. Oh, yeah, yeah. So kind of a pretty big, yeah, like, so um, just because they... Less maintenance and, you know, just easier to operate, don't have the gas and all that stuff. And we ended up, there was one with a Black Friday deal and one without. And the one with the Black Friday deal was essentially the same thing, but just slightly larger batteries. But it was $300 off. But then when you kind of looked at the price of the batteries and everything, it wasn't that great of a deal. So we ended up buying the one that was cheaper, but not on a Black Friday sale, if you'd like. So that's why, like, I do agree with you. Sometimes it's a bit misleading and just just have a sense of what you're actually buying because I think a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I was going to get this, but this one's not on sale. But, you know, I can pay, you know, 10% more and this, you know, fancier version is 25% off, but you're still paying more. And oftentimes it's stuff you don't really need anyways so the extra bells oh yeah and whistles, for sure and right? that's what i can't remember what the data i was reading into the data but they they pretty much said that it was like you know a lot of that stuff was seeing a decrease whereas like kind of more essential items were we're seeing like a, a pretty good like you know uptick but again i think like you know the headlines will read 22 percent growth but as i said like with inflation being up, what is it up over the last year? Like costs of goods have gone up quite a bit. And then, you know, Shopify's added a lot of merchants yeah. as well. So I think, you know, that 22% take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it's, I mean, I know last year Amazon reported some pretty crazy numbers. It'll be, it'll be interesting what they report this year. Yeah, really when we, in February, we'll really know. That's when we'll start seeing the numbers from, all of Q, like the calendar Q4. I know some businesses report in different financial years, but we'll really see the full picture on whether, you know, it ended up being that a lot of stuff like you were saying was pulled forward into Black Friday and then sales will be very slow for the next month or so, or it was a sign for things to come and sales were actually quite good throughout the quarter. So I agree with you. I think right now it's a bit anecdotal. We won't know the full picture until usually that's about it, right? Uh, Companies start reporting in February, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. A good overview. The last thing I think we'll talk about today is, did you see this? That Simple will now offer private equity investment to some of their clients. I I actually am with Wealthsimple. So I got this notice. It seems pretty interesting. I mean, I haven't had a lot of time to look into it. So you must be a premium, a premium or a or generational, generational member, yes. uh, investor. 
yeah. I get free U.S. dollar <laughs> accounts. Yeah. Oh, okay. There you go. So, uh, before we joke too much on it, I'll just explain to people how it's supposed to work. So, so Wealth Simple unveils that it will have a new private equity option. For those not aware, private equity it's essentially a way to invest in typically used by institutional managers. So think about like pension funds, endowments, you know, there's all different kinds of institutional manager and they'll invest in private equity because private equity will be investing in businesses that are not publicly traded. So typically you have kind of the private equity, which tends to be a lot of leverage buyouts, which they tend to use a lot of debt to buy out companies, whether they're public or not, but essentially buy it out as a whole. You might also have uh, venture capital would be kind of a, a type of private equity. And then there's another one that kind of escapes me, but real estate, you can have private real estate that is just essentially private equity for real estate. So long story short, it's not really accessible generally for retail investors, according to them. And I, I don't have any reason to to this to, uh, you know, say that's not true anything. But typically, it requires an investment of at least $100,000 to be able to have access to private equity. So here, what well, simple will do is that clients that are part in their premium kind of type of accounts with at least $100,000 in assets or generation accounts are those with $500,000 in asset or more, they will have access to this. It's a 10K minimum investment. And so it's relatively accessible compared to the 100,000 can be held in an RSP or TFSA and non-registered account. It's offered through LGT Capital Partners, which according to the site has returned 18% returns since 1998. However, these are gross returns and do not include fees. So for me overall, I mean, I'm very critical of private equity, typically, uh, generally, and I'm actually listening right now to The Myth of Private Equity. It's an audiobook, and in, so The Myth of Private Equity, an inside look at Wall Street transmo- transformative investments. And what really started being a bit suspicious when it came to private equity is that last year I was doing uh, preparing for an episode with Dan Foch from our real estate investment, and I started uh, researching, came across this piece from uh, the National Real Estate Association of Real Estate Investment uh, Trust in the U.S., so NARIT, and one of the research was kind of a recap of 2022, what to look forward in 2023, and they compared the returns of publicly traded REITs with private real estate returns, which is like I mentioned, private equity for real estate and the discrepancy was absolutely massive. It was it was insane. So they compared a publicly traded read index and a private real estate fund and the former had losses of 28% and the latter had seen gains of 13.1% with a spread, the difference of 40% in returns. And that's one of the big criticism of private equity is because it's private, there's a lot less deals that are done compared to you know, when you're publicly listed, I mean, the value is there traded daily and there's a high volume. So clearly you see where the market is at. Private equity or private real estate, 
sometimes like especially commercial real estate right now in the private area there's not a lot of deals being done so it's very difficult to establish the value and from what i've read so far is that these private equity fund managers tend to be on the more optimistic side of the valuation of their assets whether our businesses or actual real estate and there's some real questions in terms of you know what the actual returns are how they're calculated because they essentially you know their returns are based on the exit strategy that they have for these private equity investment and if those don't come through then you know their estimated returns are just smoke and mirrors so i'm going to be researching more private equity i'm sure i'll do some segments on that in the new year but it's something i i am I'm a bit kind of reticent on and a bit reluctant because I it almost feels a little bit like the mutual fund industry where they they charge a lot of fees and you know people just kind of believe that you know they're giving good returns and don't ask too many questions and they they pay those yeah, fees. Yeah, I mean it, I think I can't remember the uh page I was on this morning but it said something about like net gains of 10 and a half percent. So if you look at gross gains of 18 versus net, I mean, you're probably paying a lot of fees to to invest in it. And I mean, in terms of that that REIT index in 2022, like 2022 is like the worst year for REITs in a long time. Oh, like, yeah. While you were it talking, I looked up the returns <laughs> of of like ZRE and XRE, which are the they're kind of equal weighted REIT indexes. And yeah, they lost like they lost 20, 25 percent in uh, 2022. So for like a private equity to post gains of 13.1%. I mean, that's, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's kind of strange. I mean, I haven't, yeah. they sent me the email and and like, I didn't really look at the structure of what, what they offer, like what exactly this, this LGT Capital Partners exactly does. I mean, the, the I guess the one thing like, aside from the private equity is you, you kind of have to, you know, give well simple, you know, innovation for bringing in all this type of stuff. Like, they bring in this private equity, which, you know, retail investors just really never had a chance to get exposure to prior to that. Well, not, I shouldn't say all retail yeah. investors, but, you know, a lot of the people who are with, you know, well, simple trade, like they, they've reduced the barrier in that regard. Fractional trading, commission free and fractional trading. What else did they do? I mean, yeah. the share, share lending. Yeah, they've done yeah. a lot of good things. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm more critical. Yeah, the share lending talked about that before. No, I think they've done great thing to democratize investing in general. What I have issues with is just yeah. private equity in general. Uh, the more I read on it, the more I'm like, wow, this is this just seems like a way for fund managers to yeah. extract more and more fees. Like it doesn't. I mean, I'll read more and I'm more than happy to be proven wrong, but the more I read on it, the more I feel like the returns are not what they appear to be in a lot yeah, of these cases. I'll have to do a little bit of reading too. Like I, I dove into it this morning and I was looking at, I had found like the structure of their returns and their fees and the fees seemed, they seemed absolutely ridiculous. Like the amount of fees that they were taking. So oh, I heard is... So along with a standard 0.2 to 0.4 well simple management fee, uh, the investment will be subject to other fees on the underlying managers. For example, the investment with LGT will be subject to a 1.5% management fee and a 12.5% performance fee calculated and payable on a deal by deal basis, <laughs> provided the deal earns at least 8% return. 
So like what I would be interesting is That's is crazy. that twelve and a half percent on the gains? It ha- it would have to be. You know what I mean? That can't be twelve point five percent. It's got to be twelve point five percent of the profit on the whole. You would think. I hope so. I mean, but they still get that 1.5 regardless if they lose money or not. So that's why, and that's in line with what I've been, you know, that book I'm referring to, I'm about a quarter of the way in. And that's exactly in line with what they're criticizing private equity with is just these fees. And you have a lot of these pension investment boards where oftentimes, especially companies, you'll have union reps that are there that don't know much about (laughs) investing. So Clearly, like they they're there to supposedly, you know, be account like, you know, the investment manager supposedly accountable to them. But you have people that have little to no investment knowledge. So how can you ask the right questions? And that's one of the the big issues. But I feel like we've touched on something that we'll both be pretty passionate about. We'll probably have to do a segment on this. Maybe uh, during the holidays, we can look back at uh, private equity and have one of our kind of evergreen episodes while we're uh, celebrating Christmas with the rest yeah, of Yeah, because this, like even just reading this up, like just the, the cash redemption, like the cash redemption, uh, they can suspend... They can suspend redemptions in certain periods. Yeah. Like it's oh, yeah. a lot. Uh, it's a lot higher risk, I think, than a lot of people than a lot of people think. Yeah, saw saw a lot of the cast redemption being halted during yeah. 2020. So private real estate fund that was pretty widespread, where people could not could not get their money out because they the fund basically if. There were there were so many people that could potentially take their money out that if they went ahead and did it, the fund would have had to sell assets at a loss. So yeah. they basically freeze the cash redemptions. So that's that's essentially it. But I think that's good for today. I mean, we had more a seg- couple more segments to do, but we can do those uh, potentially next week after we've of course talked about the rest of the Canadian banks' earnings. Before we let people go, make sure you give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You know chat with us on twitter i'm at fiat underscore iceberg dan you want to give uh, people a little sign off before yeah we, so we thanks for listening up? everybody um if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at stock trades underscore ca our website is stocktrades.ca, and we have a youtube channel you can just head there and and look up stock trades we're looking to get back into youtube over the next over the next while here and yeah again thanks for listening Okay, thanks a lot, everyone. And uh, we'll be back on Monday. Well, I'll be back on Monday with Brayden with uh, one of our regular episodes. Thanks for listening and have a great day. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Brayden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.